When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nupur. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Emily West, who is an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. West's research um, interests are in the areas of promotion, technology and culture, audiences, users and consumers, and media and nationalism. She's the co-editor of the Rutledge Companion to Advertising and Promotional Culture, and her work has appeared in numerous communication and media studies journals as well. Today, we're going to be discussing her recently published monograph titled, By Now, How Amazon Branded Convenience and Normalized Monopoly, published by MIT Press in 2022. Uh, Although a lot of New Books Network episodes are posted across disciplinary channels, so to speak, I'm particularly interested in speaking with Emily about this book today because it concerns a topic that is of interest to technology and media scholars, among others. Additionally, while the book focuses on a platform company, that is Amazon, um, that all of us are intimately familiar with in our daily life, there has relatively been less attention paid to questions of brand building, platform consumer relations, and serious critical attention to the notion of convenience that we so regularly hit upon when studying the politics of technology. I thought this would be useful to flag because I'm truly in awe of how the book shakes off a certain fatigue that I definitely feel uh, around ubiquitous consumer technologies and brands, where it is perhaps easy to attribute anything and everything to platform capitalism. In that sense, I'm confident that today's discussion and this genuinely curious and critical interrogation of a huge technology of distribution will be of interest to scholars across disciplines. Welcome, Emily. We're so thrilled to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So just to start us off, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, your academic journey, and expand a bit on your primary research areas of interest? 
Yes, of course. Uh, I have a PhD in communication. And within that, my focus has been media and cultural studies. And, you know, my major projects before this one were about feminized forms of popular culture, like mm. cheerleading and greeting cards. Um, wow. I'm, uh, yes, I wrote my dissertation about <laughs> greeting cards, which is a very unusual claim to fame. But within those, yeah, within those projects, I consistently was engaging with questions of affect and emotion. And then through the greeting card research in particular, I really became engaged with issues of consumer culture, promotional culture, and how affect and emotion are implicated and shaped um, by those domains. So even my project on Amazon is my first uh, foray into platform studies. Um, and so it might mm-hmm. seem like this jump or departure from what I was doing previously, but in fact, there are these theoretical and conceptual linkages Certainly, Amazon is a you know primarily known as a shopping platform, and so it's mm-hmm. I think as such been relatively trivialized and as, as you mentioned, maybe not taken as seriously as soon as some of the other major platforms in terms of its impacts and its entanglement in our everyday lives. I think because shopping is associated with a more feminized part of popular culture. So that's how Amazon fits into my academic trajectory. Great. Um, which reminds me, I mean, I'd forgotten this. You actually start out by stating this in the introduction as well. And it's truly something, although I do study platforms and uh, also affect and emotional uh, work and emotional labor and so on, I hadn't quite thought about how, you know, looking at shopping as a feminized activity um, frames it as a certain kind of question and, and may not invite certain forms of serious consideration. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, because when I started this project, too, I was sort of surprised how um, little work, at least at that time, had been done really taking Amazon seriously. And so this was one of the reasons I thought perhaps as scholars, we hadn't prioritized it as much. Um, you know, mm-hmm. certainly um, Google and Facebook were attracting a lot more attention, in part because their connection to sort of big P politics was, is more noticeable. But I think it was also, I came to think that it was actually to do with uh, Amazon's branding, the way it presents itself to the world, the types of relationships it builds with consumers, was also part of the story of how it had come to really fly under the radar for much longer than really it should have. Of course. So getting right to the book, um, is there kind of an origin story for this project or like an episode or, or a certain moment where you were like, I'm going to study this? In retrospect, I now realize that there was uh, that moment. Um, it was actually in August of 2015. I was you know, scrolling through New York Times headlines on my phone, which I have a habit of doing. And I stopped and found myself completely engrossed in this um, article. It was an investigative piece by Jody Cantor and David Streetfeld about Amazon uh, workplace 
practices, about what it was like to work, um, actually not so much in the Amazon fulfillment centers, although they did touch on the reporting about that, but more so the working conditions at Amazon headquarters among its white collar mm -hmm. workers, its software engineers, um, the tech workers, and how it was essentially a psychologically abusive environment that the, you know, in order to, it to provide, you know, these seamless shopping and online entertainment services in order to um, get the systems to, you know, function so seamlessly and get us products so quickly, there was a real human cost and there was this extraction of labor beyond really what is reasonable. Um, it, that was the allegations anyway of the story. Um, and they interviewed a lot of current and former employees. And I, you know, found myself reading the whole article. It was very long. And then just getting engrossed in the comments and realizing that, you know, I, you know, over the years, it incrementally started, you know, using Amazon more and more um, from the occasional book purchase to, you know, becoming a Prime member and buying all kinds of things mm -hmm. from Amazon and starting to watch things on Prime Video. Um, and I think um, I, I felt quite guilty and very self-conscious that I'd never really thought about what it took to get these products to us in, say, two business days, which was the Prime delivery promise at the time. So it, it was this moment of thinking, wow, wow, Amazon got so big so fast, um, and yet I had personally not thought about it that much, even as a scholar of media and consumer culture, you know, irony of ironies. So it really comes out of this moment of like shame, I guess, and self-consciousness um, of, you know, how I had, you know, my how my use of Amazon and my relationship with, with it had become so ubiquitous, so everyday, so uninspected. And, but I came to, you know, see this as not just a me problem, but I think a more widespread problem and something that was not an accident that the Amazon had found ways to brand its own ubiquity to normalize its monopoly status, or at least market dominance. And that it, you know, we, we should see this as the accomplishment that it is, you know, um, whether you see that as a good or a bad accomplishment, like it's, it's a, it's a project that they undertook and that they were quite successful at. Absolutely. Just before we move on to that question, I think a lot of my listeners and everyone else will sort of nod along because I think that's where we're all at in terms of our infrastructural dependence at a certain level of daily life where there's no getting around Amazon. But at the same time, there's this constant, as you describe in the book, an accumulation of affect or feelings of different kinds, um, which takes me actually to the next question, where you call Amazon an affective brand and draw attention to the ethos of customer obsession as core to its operations. And as I read those sections, I found myself nodding along, thinking about the value that Amazon affords me, dependability, convenience, faster returns, turnaround time, for all those reasons that you know you just described. But it truly feels like it truly feels like I'm being heard and catered to as a user by the platform, which is maybe a very empowering feeling. Um, and you suggest that this is sort of a construction or a creation, right, through repeated socio-material interactions that generate an affective charge and an affective economy around Amazon. So can you talk a bit about what affective branding means in the context of Amazon? Yes, I think, 
approaching Amazon as an affective brand helped me understand how it had been able to brand its own ubiquity. Um, it, it Using the lens of affect trains attention on these interactions, touches on how um, your experience of time with the brand. And so it's a different lens for analyzing a brand than some of the lenses we've typically used in, say, critical studies of promotional culture, where you would look at things like the slogans, the logos, the ad campaigns. You'd approach the brand as a representational object, um, whereas um, with the lens of affect, you're approaching it as a relational object, as um, an organization or a phenomenon that you interact with through space and time. And those interactions, those touches, the, those feedback loops that you get between yourself and the brand accumu accumulate, um, you know, affect and feeling and can create this sense of attachment. Um, so, you know, using this lens then, you know, caused me to focus on how Amazon emphasizes relationship marketing. And there have been times um, in Amazon's history when it actually hasn't done a lot of, um, and this is particularly true, I think, in, the, in its you know, original market of the US, where it has stewed more traditional forms of advertising and marketing and focused more on optimizing uh, the consumer experience. So this is thought of as, you know, within the marketing world as relationship marketing. So it's not all about get, you know, putting your resources into, you know, saying to the consumer, you know, see our brand, you know, look, we're over here, you know, and trying to get that initial purchase, but putting resources into the whole experience even beyond the purchase. So, you know, up, even through the, the process of getting the, the, product, right? Like you're going to get these notifications that it's coming. Yeah. Um, and then um, perhaps if there's a return process involved, um, trying to optimize that and have that be um, as swift and painless as possible for the user. So this is something Amazon's doing. It's not unique to Amazon. Um, it's, a, I think, a shift that, uh, you know, a, a number of digital brands um, have been able to do where it's less about you know, the place, you know, the how you think about the brand in your mind and more about the how the place that the brand has in your life and the way that you see the brand um, making your life easier. Um, and so in that sense, I think Amazon, it, it, can, it can mean a lot of different things to different people. It's a very flexible brand representationally. Um, so that's fascinating about affective branding. And my follow-up question would be, or rather, this is a comment. I do have a question, but this is more of a comment coming from the user experience and you know human-computer interaction and those kinds of fields, uh, where we talk a lot about the role of people who design technology experiences within tech firms. And I, I was just wondering, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but so much of the language that you draw our attention to uh, in terms of the touch, uh, touch points, intimacy, the feedback loops and so on, it really feels like there has been some overlap or crossover between uh, the logics of marketing and the logics of designing consumer experience. Did that ever come up in your study? Yes, I think it's um, implicit in the idea of relationship marketing. Um, it, there's, there's this idea um, of consumer delight 
right? That is something that Amazon talks about. And it's also um, talked about more broadly, I think, in the user experience world, the idea that the user should not just be able to use the thing that you're designing, but be delighted by it. Um, and this has been, you know, a core to Amazon's um, approach since very early on. So they have all these leadership principles and the number one leadership principle has long been and I think will continue to be customer obsession. So they really focus on these micro moments um, within your your interactions with Amazon that they could potentially optimize, make better, that will keep you coming back, that will cause you to spend more time on their platforms. Um, so we can think about uh, a, quite a prominent example being the one-click um, purchase button. So early on in the when people were online shopping for the first time or hadn't been doing it for very long, um, Amazon recognized that having to do lots of clicks um, and having to input your information each time was what's called a pain point, right, for the user. And again, I think this is kind of pulling from that larger design user experience world and which and of which I'm sure they have an absolute army um, within within Amazon. And so they they in fact cheekily patented this idea that once you had input your um, your information into the platform that that would all be remembered. And so if you were on a, a product page and you knew you wanted that product, you could just buy it with one click. And you know, then that, that was done. It was on its way. And, um, you know, so that's just one example of how um, Amazon has used uh, a focus on all these little moments of, of consumer experience to make consumption frictionless, to even like to almost automate consumption um, to a certain extent, um, to uh to take the labor, I think, and the time and the, you know, so-called pain points out of shopping, um, which, of course, you know, we sometimes you, we've imagined, oh, shopping is fun. You know, these are sort of, you know, especially feminized stereotypes about shopping. But it, it is also a thing that takes our time that can be experienced as work. And I think Amazon has recognized that and, um, you know, done all kinds of things to make the, the experience quicker, more automated, um, more personalized. Absolutely. It's, um, if I may, it's even like automated, like you said, automated shopping. It even capitalizes on a certain kind of idle activity, like just like we scroll, I often find myself veering towards, you know, and I know a lot of people do this, look at shopping platforms and just maybe, you know, they put, I've heard that people put stuff in their carts, but they don't actually buy them. Um, but this is super insightful. Um, Relatedly, something I realized also after reading the book is how brand building and retention have shifted from an older paradigm of, like you said, being seen or remembered through publicity to now, like you said, from representation to a more maybe ecological um, sense of the brand. And uh, during your research, I was wondering, did you ever get a chance to speak with consumers who rely on Amazon, uh, not just for retail or grocery, but also media consumption and other kinds of things? And I asked this because until this book, I hadn't quite uh, reflected on how I feel about Amazon as a company. Um, ideologically, of course, you know, it's it's an evil brand. And, you know, we talked about a little bit of that. But is there a strong sentiment uh, or even or even something that consumers are willing to say out loud if you ask them what they feel about Amazon? 
Well, through the course of uh, researching this book, what I found is that in consumer sentiment surveys, so that these are surveys done by different market research or even sometimes um, academic organizations, Amazon comes out as number one or at least top five in things like the most trusted and most loved brands. Um, this is both in the United States and globally. And this sort of aligned with my idea of um, Amazon being an affective brand. Um, it, it's, but it's a different kind of, I think, attachment or affection than, say, how people feel about Disney or Nike, you know, where there are th those brands are known yep. for like very particular kinds of um, aspirational images. They trade in kind of recognizable emotions and they kind of invite people to participate in them like, you know, sweatshirts or visit the theme park or, you know, get a tattoo. I mean, people, you know, that's the, the kind of way that people affect, uh, express their love or an attachment to those brands. But I think it's a different, more diffuse, more everyday banal familiarity and even intimacy that um, people have with Amazon. So it's that taken for grantedness. It's the um, um, mm. that sense of familiarity um, that's, I think, it, it, over the years, because of the kinds of attention to, um, you know, those moments of consumer interaction and kind of optimizing them that we talked about, Amazon's, I think, really built up this well of, tr of trust, almost like a form of capital that it's been able to use to then expand well beyond the things that it originally did, like selling books and media, uh, but into all kinds of other products and services. So it's been fascinating to me how quickly people have um, you know, not only had the Amazon boxes showing up on their doorstep, but welcomed Amazon into their homes through things like the Echo Smart Speaker, um, interacting with Alexa and imagining, mm. quote unquote, her as part of the family, uh, which a lot of, um, uh, you know, survey research suggests that that's a common sentiment towards Alexa. Um, so I but on the other hand, so that's. Mm. Um, I think the broad strokes, I think, of people's um, feelings uh, or the and how it shapes overall behavior. And certainly, like, there's like 150 million Prime members in the United States. Like, there's that can't be the case, right? With, you know, and the tremendous, like, percentage of e-commerce sales that, Amer that Amazon has can't be the case without some that level of trust, familiarity, etc. That being said... It's clear to me that also people do have that there are there is a range of sentiment and feeling about Amazon out there. So this is not an interview or focus group um, or fieldwork based study. And I think that would be a great kind of follow up project to this one um, uh, that myself or, or someone else might do, because certainly I've had a lot of informal conversations with people about Amazon and done a lot of reading and the sort of um, blogosphere, popular yeah. press, you know, and some people absolutely hate Amazon and they see it as the, you know, the embodiment of all that is wrong with corporate America and big tech and they tr do try and cut it out of their lives. I think there's a big middle there too of people who are are have a, mm. a self consciousness about how dependent they are on it, and they're kind of um, uh, reflexive about that and uncomfortable with it. But they, you know, 
they are dependent on it and they're not necessarily able to dis disentangle themselves, but they do have a sense of ambivalence at least, and sometimes even guilt about that because they have these questions like, you know, but often they are questions and, and people don't have clear answers in their minds. Yep. Like, you know, is this really wasteful to be, you know, having things delivered to my house, you know, are the stores on my main street, main street closing because I've, I'm buying things from Amazon now, you know, did someone in a warehouse suffer or get COVID because I bought this and people have those questions, but they have no way of answering them um, because so much about how Amazon works is not um, accessible or visible to us. That's so true. <laughs> um, so since we have limited time today, we won't be able to go into every single chapter, but I was just hoping if you could sort of roughly tell us how the book is structured and some of the topics that you address before we go into some of the specific chapters. Yes. Yeah, so I have organized the book around um, three aspects of Amazon that I think are important to the relationship that the brand builds with consumers. So the first section is distribution. So the fact that it can get things to us, it can do so very quickly uh, and reliably is a huge part of how it's built this trust and relationship. So I start out by conceptualizing Amazon as a distribution brand, but also recognizing that it's not the first ever distribution brand. So I do some historical comparison um, and actually contemporary comparison to other distribution brands like Sears, Walmart, uh, the United States Postal Service. And then I move into a chapter that um, really thinks about the material and infrastructural elements of Amazon. So I focus in this chapter on the box and the unboxing experience as central to the affective nature of the brand. And I also consider the extent of its distribution infrastructures, but how Amazon encourages what I call distribution fetishism, which is my play on Marx's commodity fetishism, which notes that we mystify, in, in, in this concept, I'm noting that we mystify not only, um, you know, how where commodities come from and where their value comes from, um, but also um, the processes of commodity distribution. So we're just focused on how quickly things get to us, but we um, don't have any sense of um, the labor, for example, and the, and the physical infrastructure that it's taken for these products to conquer space and, and get to us. So that's the distribution piece. And then I move into um, the culture piece. So I consider, uh, for example, that Amazon started out as an online bookseller and kind of trace the um, some of the history of Amazon's um, engagements in the books business and consider also how platformization. So the fact that Amazon is a platform, how that's impacted um, their market dominance, their power within book selling. Um, and in that chapter, I also consider the, the Amazon's move into brick and mortar retail, because I think that's a really interesting development that impacts the culture of shopping <laughs> uh, as it brings its sort of online, um, uh, the techniques and the approaches of online um, retailing into the brick and mortar space. Um, and I think another key development um, or thing that is distinctive about Amazon is the way that personalization has been a huge part of its business model since the very beginning. So I trace the, in the next chapter, the history of its, you know, it's a, 
personalization activities and how that's culminated now in Alexa. Um, so, you know, personalization via voice and how um, through Alexa and through other aspects of its business, Amazon offers surveillance as a service. So, you know, it, it, instead of secretly surveilling us and collecting data that it can then use to personalize and services and as well as sell all kinds of marketing products to other people, it says, look, it's good. Like we know all about you. And that's why we can offer you such great personalized service. Um, so that's like, a, that's sort of one of the main ideas in that um, chapter. And then the third chapter within culture looks at the ways that Amazon provides media as a service. So it's video products, um, music, um, et cetera, and how media then is a key part of Amazon's platform enclosure strategy. So just offer more things that keep people spending more and more time um, within Amazon's platforms. Um, and then the final section on image looks at Amazon's, um, it kind of goes beyond the specific products, services, and aspects. And looks at Amazon's self-branding and PR strategies more broadly in terms of the ways that Amazon uses language and metaphor to minimize its perceived size and market power. And then in the, the next chapter in that section looks at how it presents itself around the world as it attempts to enter and dominate markets globally. Um, not always successfully, um, but um, that is sort of, you know, part of its project is to internationalize and, um, and you know, as it, it runs out of growth potential in the U.S., it looks elsewhere to do that. Absolutely. Um, all right. So then getting to chapter one, um, again, we won't discuss uh, the chapters in detail, but I'll kind of pick on some interesting things that um, caught my attention. So the first chapter, like you said, is titled A New Kind of Distribution Brand. Um, and it ends by making this interesting distinction between digital capitalism and platform capitalism. It is one of the many nuggets, academically speaking, that make the book such a rich text to work through. Uh, because again, there's this sort of oversaturation of concepts and terms across disciplines uh, on tech, capitalism, public life, and so on. So would you care to expand a little bit on what this shift is or what the distinction is between digital capitalism and platform capitalism? Yes. Yeah. This, this was an idea that emerged as I was working through what, if anything, was distinctive about Amazon as a distribution brand, as I compared it to the Sears and the Walmarts and the UPSs of the world. Because in fact, there were, there were a lot of similarities. Like in its heyday, Sears was the everything store and people saw it as almost a utility. It, it was almost infrastructural. And like Amazon, Sears had so much trust, you know, with with consumers that it, act, you know, it, it was more beneficial for it to sell um, appliances, say, using a Sears brand than the original product brand. Because, and that's kind of true with Amazon as well. Like people's relationship trust with the Amazon brand sometimes trumps um, the prominence or the feeling that people have with the individual product brands. So that's something that in the product brand world people, you know, uh, sellers are trying to understand. Um, and Sears had, you know, had a lot of brand flexibility as well. Like they did um, spread out into a variety of products and services. Like they had an aut automotive shops and, you know, things like that. Just the way that Amazon has kind of stretched in all these ways that, are, you know, are, are quite surprising. Um, so, and 
another similarity I saw is that, you know, these previous um, distribution brands had used the tools, had used digital tools of communication and computing to um, speed up, you know, the circuit of capital to get more efficiency and predictability in their business. Um, So that's not something that Amazon did for the first time. In fact, Walmart, um, you know, a few decades ago, everyone was talking about how Walmart was Um, had revolutionized logistics and was um, getting, you know, products just in time to the stores and in a highly predictable way because they had such um, visibility thanks to computing and satellites um, into what people were buying when and why. Um, So, but that was true that already. So then, you know, what is different about um, Amazon? Is this just the latest, you know, the latest Sears, the latest Walmart and, um, you know, thinking about recognizing that Amazon is a platform, I saw is an aspect that does make it different. So it's um, if, if you're conceptualizing a platform as being a digital intermediary, so where you, you create a digital space where, um, you know, other other parties can come and meet and do some kind of exchange or business. So, you know, being a digital capitalist company is having a website where you sell books being a platform is where that same website you open up and say, hey, do you want to come sell your products to the consumers who come here? You could sell used books here. We're not going to sell the used books and, and we're going to even allow you to sell your books or your used books at lower prices against our books. And so that um, gives certain inherent advantages um, that perhaps the other distribution brands didn't have. So now all of a sudden um, you have a lot of visibility into the market. And, you know, even if these other people selling on your platform, you know, outcompete you, you're getting a cut of that sale. So it's not like you've, you've lost out. Um, you have are now can collect data about all the things that are happening on your platform, which you can use to you know improve your business, or you can sell marketing um, and targeted advertising products um, using that data. Yeah. So, and in addition, there's a, a sense in which um, the platform you didn't have to add that much more capital intensive stuff to this platform you build in order to get more value out of it. Um, so you can have more and more users add, I mean, obviously behind the scenes, there are data centers and you, you're going to need, you know, more maintenance, et cetera. But in general, it's not like where you have to build out more stores, that's, which is super capital intensive in order to add more business using yeah. this digital platform you have, you can scale up um, tremendous, you know, when with this platform approach tremendously um, quickly, all of this, you know, in, in addition, I guess there's one more thing to that, which a couple more things, there's network effects. So the more people that come, the more people who want to buy and sell on your platform. And Wall Street thinks, oh, wow, there's this um, unlimited potential for growth with this platform thing. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, the, you know, the Amazons of the world are competing with, say, you know, say Barnes and Noble's digital book- bookstore, um, but with so much more investment capital. Because as a platform and as a platform that has shown it can move into different kinds of businesses, um, it's going to get much more investment capital than some other business that's trying that's not that's not operating as a platform. So that's what the, 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 the argument of the chapter, which is that, you know, we've seen some of these things before. Amazon does these things very well and perhaps even better than some of the other distribution brands. But look at these advantages, um, the, the qualitative difference that being a platform makes. Yep. 
This is, um, it's blowing my mind because uh, I think early in the introduction, you call this book a cultural study of bigness in today's economy. And again, I was like, this is spot on. Um, so, you know, a simple question I have is, again, when you went about mm. designing, organizing, you know, how to scope the study, um, how did you do that? Because it's such a it's such a tricky thing because I'm also realizing that you suddenly have to make some decisions and say, Amazon is everything, right? Just as you described, like I was reminded of the fact that I used to rely on, I think it's called Abe Books, which used to be a used bookseller platform. And, and then maybe two or three years into my engagement with the company, I realized that they are owned by Amazon as well. And and I often feel like uh, these kind, this ubiquity or, you know, this platform ubiquity, like sort of really proceeds or in some ways I'm playing, my politics is playing catch up to the what the platform is and it's everything. So how do you study something like this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it helped that I knew what questions I had about it and what I was uniquely positioned to shed light on given the kind of training and um, perspective that I have, you know, from the work I've done in media and cultural studies. So I knew from the outset that I wanted to focus on this brand consumer relation and questions of affect and how Amazon was kind of designing strategically, um, you know, to optimize the consumer experience, but also, you know, fade into the background, fade into the woodwork, normalize its own ubiquity. So I, what I look at in the book is really organized by what shapes that um, the most for, say, the average M Amazon consumer. So, you know, the idea I think that you're getting at is that Amazon is um, and has become essential infrastructure very, very quickly. That's actually a term that um, our current um, federal trade Commission Chair Lena Khan um, used a number of years ago when when she was writing about Amazon and antitrust, and so a book that considered that question more broadly, like a, a description and a full investigation of all the ways that Amazon has become essential infrastructure, I think would be a much bigger and, and different kind of book because you would want to fully engage with something like Amazon Web Services, for example. Um, and, and of course, these things are not even staying still, like within the time that I, um, you know, since I've published the book, you know, I've learned how rapidly Amazon is moving um, into last mile delivery, um, uh, you know, which was something that for a long time, it mostly um, outsourced um, to other companies. And of course, over the last number of years, we've seen those blue vans become um, more and more um, visible, whereas for a long time, you know, it, it, we, you didn't see, uh, you know, necessarily Amazon vehicles on the road, except perhaps the big trucks on the highway. Um, so, you know, I think there are many books to be written about Amazon, and some of them are, are already <laughs> out as well. Um, and I'm sure there's more coming um, because its scope is so broad. Um, it's a moving target. Um, I think there are different um, also conceptual and theoretical angles that you could take on this. Um, so I wanted to be really clear about um, the frame and um and, and have the, the core questions and theoretical tools I was bringing to this organize what I looked at. I love that. Um, and so 
in fact, actually returning to the question of consumer culture, uh, which is another reason why I love this book, because, you know, there's not enough engagement, I feel, with that notion. So in the, again, in the introduction, you state that consumer identities are socially and politically consequential. The ways that e-commerce and digital technologies reshape consumer identities matter. Rightly or wrongly, the things that we buy are important resources in how we construct and communicate identities and make everyday culture. And I, I absolutely love this, right? Like I thought that this was so relatable, especially from the con consumer angle, which most of us find ourselves um, approaching Amazon as. Um, so you describe the subjectivity of the choosing consumer as a kind of trade-off or a cost that we pay for the consume the convenience um, of Amazon. Uh, what what is this notion of the served self? What is happening here? What's the shift? Yeah. So th this was um, an idea that came out of uh, my investigation of personalization. Um, I, I described that chapter earlier, um, where this had been part of Amazon's way of approaching e-commerce since the beginning. And lo looking at the trajectory over time and the way in which convenience and, and personalized service really organizes so much of what Amazon is offering really on a mass scale, um, made me reflect on... Um, you know, what it even means to be a consumer um, and the traditional ways that we had have thought about consumer subjectivities and the way ways were positioned by the market. Um, so, you know, in teaching, say, classes on consumer culture for many years, I think a kind of 20th century way of um, imagining what it means to be a consumer is that you go out into the marketplace, um, that there are many um, different vendors and products to choose from, and that what defines... What defines being a consumer is the idea of choice. So choice as um, almost a creative activity, you can use choice to kind of construct your identity, to construct the self, but also as a disciplinary type of power. Like that's the power you have as a consumer is, to, is choice and you can discipline the market with it. If the price is too high, you don't buy from there. Um, if the product isn't good, you don't go back. Um, and then th there was a kind of homology or you know, easy comparison then between um, the type of choosing we do in the marketplace and then, you know, citizen choices. Like, you, you know, you, you choose, um, you know, when you vote. Um, so what I see, though, with the way Amazon organizes consumption, and of course, as a ubiquitous brand, it's something that is organizing more and more of our consumption over, the t over time, is that this emphasis on service, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of taking the labor of choice and the burden of it away from the consumer and, and, and take, taking it onto the brand as part of the service. And it makes sense to an extent because with online shopping and, you know, the just glut of choices that we have now, it, it, it can be burdensome. Like we have more choices online than we, than we ever would have had going to a physical store. Um, and yet, you know, you see with various aspects of um, Amazon's interface that, it does more and more to try to automate consumption or make it um, just easier, kind of make some of the choices for you. So these could be, you know, everything from, um, you know, just the way the algorithm, um, you know, you know, orders when, when with search terms, you know, of course, it's going to order the products, you know, in, in a certain um, priority. And we know that people tend to not go very far down the list, but to make it even easier, Amazon will say, oh, this is Amazon's choice. 
you know, we've already looked at the products, you know, this is the one you're going to choose. Or when there's multiple sellers for a single product, mm. they award one of those sellers what's called the buy box. So when you look at the product, they've already kind of pre-selected the seller that, that they think is the best deal. And unless you dig into it further, you're almost everybody buys from that seller. Um, and especially now with Alexa, um, you know, if you ask Alexa for, um, you know, to, to order some, you know, if you want to buy something through Alexa, um, it's organized because it's, you know, burdensome to list, to listen to a long list of things to just give you a, short, a small number of choices. So, and, and beyond that, Amazon is, you know, um, kind of offering itself as like a personal assistant more broadly. Like I think about, um, a product like uh, a service like Amazon Key, where you can organize with Amazon to actually put products inside your house, or you can remotely organize for like, you know, Amazon approved house cleaners to enter your house. And you never need to, you know, I mean, so I think that there's just, you know, this way in which Amazon wants to keep us within the platform, make everything easy, you know, they can make personalized recommendations and, and, you know, predict or perhaps nudge us towards certain choices. And it's taking both the labor, but then I think also the power of choice suddenly away, um, you know, from the consumer towards the brand. You know, the brand says, we know it's hard to make all these choices. There's too too many things to choose from. We're just going to make it easy for you. We're going to recommend the things to you that we already know that you're going to like. We're going to, you know, allow you to just um, automate certain purchases so they just show up. Um, so that's what I mean by the serve self, you know, that this emphasis on service um, is something that I really started to notice as I looked across Amazon's product and services. As you spoke, um, I could think about certain interactions and certain purchases where, you know, I've really not been fully present in many ways and, and maybe unknowingly, you know, gone with the flow of what exactly you're describing. Like, yeah, choice is hard and there are certain visible markers that I guess I wasn't even paying that much attention or troubled by, despite being a scholar of certain things, I was just like, yeah, this makes sense. Uh, Especially the, you know, the Amazon's choice part of it, like how it institutes trust. And it it has become a visible marker of of trust for me, certainly. One more little fact that I think um, speaks to um, you know, the, the ways in which um, we imagine that we, we're going to be actively choosing all the time in online shopping. And in fact, you would think that there's more scope for that than ever, because it's easier to look at different stores online than it is to like walk or drive to them. But, you know, consider that anywhere from it's estimated two thirds to three quarters of product searches now start on Amazon. Oh, wow. So it's become a def- it's the default product search engine. Mm. And there's also evidence that people are, um, you know, especially if you've already, you know, if you're already a prime member. So, in, you know, you, you've already made this investment, right, to kind of cover the vast majority of your shipping uh, expenses. And so it seems that this is also making people less price sensitive. So you would imagine, oh, you know, people are going to be scouring the Internet always for the lowest price. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's good evidence that people are, are very motivated to just, you know, go with, is, with the easiest, with, you know, that they know it's going to show up quickly. They know they don't have to worry about paying for shipping, even if perhaps going elsewhere, spending the time and effort to go elsewhere, they would have gotten it for a, a lower price, even with the shipping. 
or maybe they wouldn't have had to you know, pay shipping somewhere else. But there's a way in which there's a comfort and predictability and ease to staying with Amazon's platform um, that um, may not actually be always, you know, yielding, you know, leading to these sort of rational consumer practices of like everyone's searching for the lowest price and maximizing yeah. their utility. There's lots of evidence that the affective, you know, uh, relationship that we have with Amazon actually is discouraging us from those kinds of behaviors. So then would you say that when we talk about convenience, especially related to Amazon, it's kind of layered with these other calculations, again, especially thinking about uh, women's work and the temporal economy of, you know, what other things we need to do. Um, The convenience that Amazon offers is not just the ease of shopping, but it's also a certain ease of shopping with the security, trust, uh, familiarity, all the other things that you describe. Like convenience is a very loaded concept. Yeah. And I don't want to minimize the time saving. You know, I certainly, you know, I have children and I think once I had small children, I really found it really hard work and difficult to physically go to stores, especially with them, you know, so it would become like a childcare situation, you know, to have to um, physically go to a store or, you know, you would, you know, need something for, you know, coming up and you, you just wouldn't know where in your day you'd be able to get to a store. So I think that there are that, you know, I don't think the benefit, the time saving and the convenience and the confidence that people have with Amazon is just in their heads. There are real pressures that push people and, and, you know, to use these services. And of course, in the pandemic, that was a whole other, or that has been a whole other um, layer to it. Um, But I do also think that sometimes it's hard to separate our, our, our lived experience of that from the ways in which Amazon encourages us to see ourselves as time-starved subjects, right? So that becomes also the new standard. You know, our, our whole sta- you know, way of living um, sometimes is now starting to get organized around the fact that you're you know, not going to have to spend as much time out in public, you know, traveling around provisioning for your household. So I think that you know, just as this is true, always been true with, you know, with all advertising and promotion, it's really hard sometimes, there's a chicken and egg issue around, you know, where do these perceived needs and desires um, ultimately arise from? And I think the answer is not always so straightforward. Yeah, especially since they are also competing with and leading to the closing down of smaller businesses Mm -hmm. in that area that you might even go to. So it's certainly like a self-perpetuating cycle. All right. So finally, coming to the labor politics um, around Amazon, uh, which is, you know, possibly a fairly visible sort of issue. Uh, You were studying a corporation that is kind of notorious for its treatment of its workers, both the high tech workers, as well as the fulfillment center uh, workers, as well as its uh, ecological impact. Right. Um, And the concluding chapter raises and attempts to answer a really interesting question, which is, why is it that we see the most visible forms of activism and resistance from the workers associated with the company uh, rather than, for instance, its consumers? Um, And it made me even think about, you know, do I remember any instance of a consumer boycott? I know sellers have boycotted Amazon in the past. Workers have done it. But where do consumer politics stand in the age of Amazon? Yes, I think that this is 
a kind of a the, one of the motivating questions um, of the book, you know, given the type of relationship, the relationship marketing, the, you know, the way that Amazon brands its own ubiquity in our lives and the, the kind of shift that I've talked about from being a choosing subject to a served self, where does that leave us in terms of questions of consumer politics and our, our, our sense of our, our, our own consumer power? Um, so, yeah, I am troubled by the fact that it's workers who have so much to lose, who are consistently the ones um, pushing back on Amazon's policies, getting Amazon in the news. But I understand why that is. Um, you know, th there is something depoliticizing and isolating and fragmenting about the role that Amazon has in our lives. So there's the, the, the idea of the served self where we, we've built this, we have a comfort, a familiarity, even perhaps a sense of intimacy with Amazon, which I think may overall make people um, less likely to feel angry or kind of rise up against it. Um, it's become this you know essential infrastructure almost like a utility so quickly so it's it can become hard for people to even envision okay how do i disentangle myself from this company i mean as you pointed out sometimes we're interacting with amazon through other companies without you know and then you might find out oh great zappos is owned by amazon twitch is owned by amazon most of the things i, I you know so many of the things i interact with online are um you know use amazon web services so it feels <laughs> like there's nowhere to turn and also you know there's it's a it's an on for the most part right it's an online brand um so we're all individually interacting with Amazon in the privacy of our homes um, and sometimes in quite different ways. You know, the way I the way I interact with Amazon might be quite different than the kinds of um, history and interactions that you have with the company. So there are these sort of structural reasons that seem to discourage or mm. um, dissuade or make it more difficult to organize as consumers, you know, and, and against Amazon, or at least, to, you know, ask really hard questions and ask for the kinds of evidence or transparency that, um, you know, that seem reasonable to ask for. And I think that has, you know, slowed down the kinds of common sense, you know, regulation and government oversight um, of Amazon um, that, you know, that I think is now starting to happen, but I think it's been difficult for lawmakers who know that, hey, everyone uses this. It's kind of, you know, essential in a whole bunch of ways. People love it. So, you know, now am I going to go after Amazon? I think there's, um, yeah. you know, there's an interesting, you know, anecdote in, in the book about, I think it was in 2015, maybe, um, a, a lot of writers and publishers um, wrote a letter to the Department of Justice talking about how they felt Amazon was using its power as a the you know the, the major distribution platform for books to extract really unreasonable marketing costs you know from from booksellers from publishers so basically if you had any chance of being found you know on Amazon you'd have to pay so much mm -hmm. um, in these marketing costs and that it was just you know in in turn of mm -hmm. course they're competing with Amazon because Amazon's a publisher too. So, you know, it's this, you know, self-preferencing or this inherent conflict of interest that Amazon has in, in a whole bunch mm. of um, product areas. And, you know, the, the response back from the Department of Justice at the time was, 
you know, people see a lot of value in Amazon and they get, you know, books for, you know, low prices and it's convenient. And I mean, essentially, you know, the, the answer was people, people really enjoy this. So I, you know, we don't think we're going to go after it. Um, so, you know, I think that's changed and there's a broader, you know, appreciation now, but it, you know, if consumers themselves won't say, Hey, you know, there's a limit to the costs and the impacts that should be undergone for our convenience and delight, then, you know, can we, it, count on other people doing that for us yeah wow <laughs> um i was gonna ask you is there a way out but i don't think there's an easy way out right i don't think there's an easy way out i agree we're so implicated in in every part of it yeah yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I certainly I people say, you know, should I boycott Amazon? And I, I'm, you know, all for people reflecting on their own consumption and pursuing ethical consumption in the ways that they see fit. Um, and that matters in all kinds of ways. But I think that there, you know, more urgently needs to be some way of thinking about how do we you know, what, what would it look like to work more collectively as consumers and, mm. um, and users um, in the face of, you know, Amazon, but also um, the power of big tech more broadly and to really motivate, um, you know, our representatives and lawmakers to, you know, to work with urgency, um, to become more involved, I think, in those conversations. Because just because these companies became essential infrastructure so quickly, I think in part because there just wasn't a great understanding of how how the logics of platform capitalism actually differed from that of d digital capitalism and you know we're going to um allow for this scaling up and these network effects just at a speed that no one was really prepared for but that doesn't mean it's too late yeah to put in, in place you know common sense um policies and you know limits like does amazon need to you know, do all the things that it does. Like maybe Amazon Web Services should be a different company than, um, you know, the e-commerce side, for example. Um, that's just one, you know, or maybe there should be, you know, rules about you can't both provide a platform and then compete against people using your platform, you know, just yeah. things like that. Um, uh, I think that there's a lot of room for consumers to be better informed and to figure out how we can forge some kind of collective consumer identity and voice to um, not only be spoken for, because that's what the, you know, Amazon will do. They'll say, we care, we're obsessed with our consumers. We only want to provide the best service um, and um, the best value to them. Um, but, you know, it, it's hard because Amazon's everywhere doing everything. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of people. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tall order and it's in a context of where there isn't super active consumer politics already, right, in the United States. That's that's something broader I found myself reflecting on. I love this. I think the, the collective reckoning that you're calling for isn't even, because I think a lot of people tend to mistake or conflate it with boycotts or, or the kind of more ethical consumption or small business type of thing, which they then say this isn't about convenience. But even so, just as consumers, the way your book shows, it, it's a, we need to ask more questions about how much or what kind of choice of consumption we have, even in this ecosystem and economy, which I think would already lead people to maybe ask for better or more um, together, right? Yeah, like, uh, like more choice about... Um, the ways our data is going to be collected and used. 
right? I mean, yeah. that's um, that's a issue with Amazon, but also well beyond it. Um, that's been just sort of a given for so long that we're going to, you know, in exchange for getting certain conveniences or services or low prices, um, our data will be collected and repackaged and, and sold in some way. Um, but, you know, if, if we say we believe in consumer choice, if we think that's important, you know, why is that not in play? Or, um, you know, a greater range, you know, I always think it's interesting around the shipping times, you know, you, you do have a choice with shipping times with Amazon, Mm -hmm. but there isn't, you know, there's huge implications actually, like in terms of the um, impact on workers and the ecological um, um, consequences of picking like one or two day shipping versus something that's a little slower. Um, But Amazon doesn't include us in that um, decision-making. They just say, oh, you know, you can have these choices and maybe we'll give you an incentive for it to be a little slower. Well, tell me why, you know, Um, um, Mm -hmm. or maybe make visible, like, you know, what would, what would the like financial cost of delivering that quickly be if I wasn't already paying for it? You know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're, you know, the implications of our various micro decision moments are hidden from us because obviously it would slow down you know, what, what is otherwise, you know, the frictionless consumption. Yep. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This book packs so much rich detail and insightful analysis of a key digital infrastructure of our times. Uh, before we let you go, I'm sure our listeners would love to know what you might be currently working on or in the future. Yes, I'm um, currently working on the second edition of the Rutledge Companion to Advertising and Promotional Culture, uh, co-edited with Matt McAllister, which I'm really excited about. And um, for that volume, I'm working on a collaborative piece about the rise of live streaming on e-commerce platforms. So that's something briefly mentioned in the book that I've now um, dived into a bit more. Um, this is sort of the meeting of influencer culture um, with um, uh with e-commerce selling. So watching a show completely devoted to a personality featuring products and perhaps revealing deals, um, you know, to Mm -hmm. the viewers of the show. So this is like a a new genre almost of um, promotional culture that has popped up all over and Amazon has kind of jumped on the bandwagon and is um, kind of, I I think in the early stages of figuring out what role live streaming might play on its um, platform. And um, in the future, you know, I'm still deciding. I mean, I, I'm interested in pursuing the idea of the served self further, um, perhaps in terms of um, the whole variety of smart home products and services and the relationships that people have with all kinds of digital assistance and services. Um, and I'm also really, I think that Amazon's environmental record and the way in which it's now self-styling itself as a leader in corporate climate accountability is really important. And that's um, another topic I plan to pursue further. Very cool. Uh, Thank you again, Professor West. This was great. Thank you so much, Nupur. I really enjoyed it.